chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Mark 8, 27 through 38. This can be found on page 1003 in the Pew Bibles. So if you're able, please rise in honor of God's inspired word. Mark 8, 27 through 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This ends the reading of God's inspired word. Amen. Please now remain standing for our sermon text, which will be from the book of Jeremiah as we resume the series through that book. We'll be looking at Jeremiah 21. Since it's been a while since we've been in the book, I decided to move, just to zoom right to one of the most central, most important passages, I think, in the whole book um, that really brings together so many of the core themes um, that are so vital for us as Christians to see. So we'll go back to some of the earlier chapters later. But for now, if you turn to page 771, we'll be reading from Jeremiah 21, verses 1 through 10. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Maaseiah, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds, and will make him withdraw from us. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. 
and I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Afterward, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people in the city who survive the pestilence, sword, and famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, and to the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. As far the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let us pray. Our great God, thank you for giving us a timely word at each phase of our lives. We know, Lord, that your word is everlasting that it is always alive, always speaking to your people. And we know that this was a very specific word given long ago to a specific situation, but we know at the same time that these things were written for us and for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so we pray, stir up in us true hope, not the false hopes of this world, but the true hope that comes only through the gospel of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been beautiful spring weather here in Ohio, and in days like this, it's just awfully hard to believe that this creation, which is just so perennially beautiful and perennially um, spring with new life, um, it's so hard to believe that it's actually one day going to come to an end. Like, it really takes faith to believe that at one point in history, sometime, God is going to intervene. He's going to interrupt the flow of history with his almighty and climactic judgment. It's just something that you you can't just sort of look outside and know that's going to happen. It's something that you have to receive by faith, which doesn't mean just sort of blind, you know, uh, make sense to me kind of thing. Faith means, according to the Bible, receiving what God has spoken in his word as though it's true, even if you can't see it with your eyes. So it takes faith to believe that God's going to judge the world one day. You have to believe it based on just what he said. And let's say we do believe it, because we believe God's word. How should we then live? How should we then live in light of the fact that God is going to interrupt history in a climactic way after which everything will be different. The old creation which we're currently living in will pass away. A new creation will come. How should we live today in light of the judgment that's coming someday? We're going to think about this, thinking first about the judgment that God ordained would come 
upon Judah and on Jerusalem that we're just hearing about here in our text, Jeremiah 21. We're going to use that, in particular, this idea of what, it was, what they were supposed to do to surrender. They were to acknowledge and surrender that the judgment is going to come, go out to the, to the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, as they're called here. They were to surrender and go out. We're going to talk about how that paradox of surrendering to death is actually the way to life. We're going to talk about how that was true for Judah. We're going to talk about how it's true for Jesus, that Jesus himself surrendered himself to death as the way to life. And then we're going to talk about how that's what we're to do. And there are a couple ways in which that applies to us as Christians today. The paradox of the gospel is this. The way of life must lead through death. The way of life must lead through death. So as we come to this passage, we see the occasion. In verse 1, chapter 21, verse 1, we have the Babylonians surrounding the city of Jerusalem in the days of Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. And you can imagine it. Here he is, this king of the small kingdom. The Babylonians have destroyed all the other cities of Judah. And now here's this huge host of really the strongest empire in the ancient Near East at your doorstep surrounding the city of Jerusalem and besieging it. And you can imagine Zedekiah's feelings like this is really desperate. This is really bad. What we really need right now is a miracle. And so what does he do? He goes and he sends a delegation to the prophet Jeremiah and he says, see if God will do according to all his wondrous works. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think of what he's hoping that God will do. Because it's something that God actually already had done a hundred years prior or so. Back in the days of Hezekiah, the Assyrians, which was the big empire at the time, the Assyrians were surrounding the city of Jerusalem. Again, the Assyrians had conquered all the other towns except for Jerusalem. And once again, Hezekiah was in a very desperate situation. And what did Hezekiah do? He sent a delegation to the prophet Isaiah. And he said, what, what is God going to do? He's praying that God would do a miracle. And that is, in fact, what God did. Hezekiah prayed. Hezekiah trusted God. And what did God do? 185,000 Assyrians slain by the angel of death. So that what happens the next day, the king of Assyria goes back with his tail between his legs. It was a miracle. It was a miracle that only God could do. It's like a, uh, a rescue out of Egypt level of miracle. The awesome and astonishing defeat of God's people's enemies by God himself simply because of his miraculous intervention and his love for his people. So Zedekiah is hoping for another miracle on that scale. And what does Jeremiah say? And response. Well, look at the text. It says, Behold, verse 4, he says, This is what he's saying to Zedekiah. Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war. And we can imagine him, he's on the edge of his seat. The weapons of war, yes. And then he says, That are in your hands. I'm going to turn back the weapons of war, Zedekiah, that are in the hands of all your soldiers on the wall. I'm going to Cause those Babylonians, he says, I'm going to bring them into the midst of this city. Obviously, what that says is the siege 
will be successful. The Babylonians will breach the wall. The Babylonians will enter and come into the midst of the city. And it's all because of this. Verse 5, I myself am fighting against you. So imagine, first off, the terror that this must generate in Zedekiah's heart. Now God, who previously fought for Israel, and Israel won all these amazing battles against the Egyptians and then against the Canaanites, and I already mentioned the Assyrians, right? God fighting for Israel is the decisive thing. If he is on your side, if the great champion, God Almighty, is on your side, then you can resist the greatest empire. And, and you can win scarcely without even needing to lift a finger, as happened in Hezekiah's day. But when God is fighting on the other side, that, all that is now going to apply to you, Zedekiah. Now, it doesn't matter how much, how, how much defenses you might have on the wall. It doesn't matter how strong your guys are. A later passage in Jeremiah will say, even if there were only sick and wounded soldiers in the camp of the Babylonians, they would still win because I fight for Babylon. Now, this is an astonishing thing for a people that for so long have thought of themselves as the Lord. He's on our side. The Lord, he's on our side. We're invincible. Nothing can stop us. We have, after all, chapter 7, remember this, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We've got God on our side. And now God's saying, "Um, you haven't been paying very close attention. All through the book of Jeremiah to this point, God's been saying, you have set yourself against me through all of your idolatry, through all of your persistent refusal to listen to my prophets, through all your rejection of me. And God says it's basically spiritual adultery. You, I'm bound to you, Israel, as husband to wife. And now what have you done for age on end? You've gone after other gods and worshiped them. And so God says enough is enough. I've sent my, my, my prophets to you day after day, including Jeremiah. You have not listened. So this is my resolve. I now fight for Babylon. And it gets even worse as you start to, to think about what God is saying, how things are different now from Hezekiah's day. Look what he says later. He says, I'm going to, verse 6, strike down the inhabitants of this city. They will die of great pestilence. And he, he goes on, he says, at the end... King of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he's the one I'm going to give this city into the hand of. And it says, he shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. This is verse 7. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. Now, if we had just read Deuteronomy 7, those words would really have stuck out to us. Because those words are the words that God gave to Israel when he told them, to come and to destroy the Canaanites. God had appointed Israel to be, back in the days of Joshua, when they're first coming into the land, he had appointed Israel to be his means of judging the Canaanites. And he had said to them, I want you, as the vehicles of my justice, I want you to destroy the Canaanites, and you are not to pity or spare or show compassion. This is the divine judge saying, look, you're my executioner. This is not a time for compassion. This is a time for justice. Now, try to fathom it. The tables are turned. God now fights for Babylon. Babylon is now destroying Judah, who is the new Canaan. They have become Canaanized by their sins, so the only just result is that they receive the punishment that the Canaanites deserved. So, 
It's the opposite of the days of the Assyrian siege with Hezekiah. Now God fights for the besiegers. It's the opposite of the days of Canaan, of the Canaanites when um, Joshua, God fought for Israel against the nations. Now God fights for the nations against Israel. And there's one more allusion in here where God says, I myself, verse 5, will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm. Where have we heard that? The Exodus, right? God fighting against Egypt with outstretched arm. And we, we think of outstretched arms like this. It's actually outstretched arm holding a weapon like this, about to slay the enemy. Now God fights for Israel's enemies. And it's all because of his justice. So to go back to the initial question of Zedekiah, will God act according to his wondrous works? Yes! He will act according to his wondrous works, but you, O Judah, will be the recipients of his just and holy wrath. And so we have to ask ourselves, wow, pretty grim. Sounds like it's over. Sounds like there's justice and there's no, there's no more hope for Israel or for Jerusalem. It's gone. They're, they're going to be destroyed. There's nothing they can do. God's fighting for the other side. And then we read verse 8. And notice that the recipient here has shifted, right? Verse 8 says, to this people you shall now say. So he, he had the word for Zedekiah. Because God knew that Zedekiah would indeed choose to, to not surrender, which is what he's about to say here. Now he's speaking to the people, and he says, I'm going to give you a way of hope. Listen to what he, God says. He says, verse 8, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoa! If we are remembering our book of Deuteronomy again, we'll remember that this is the climax of the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 30, Moses brought the, remember Deuteronomy is this great farewell sermon. Moses brings the sermon to a climax by saying, I set before you today the way of life and the way of death. What was the way of life and way of death back in Moses' day? Well, it was, you obey this law that I'm setting before you, and you're going to get to stay in the land. You'll be blessed. You'll thrive. I will continue to prosper you, and all will go well. Now God says, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. But then he says something very interesting, very different. He says, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword. By pestilence and famine. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans, remember Chaldeans is another word for Babylonians, surrenders to the Babylonians or Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. And then he gives a reason. I am going to destroy the city. So again, if we know that judgment is coming, if we believe that God is going to judge how shall we live? Here's what it meant for Israel and, and the Judeans as they're stuck in Jerusalem. It means going out and surrendering to the Babylonians before the siege is over. And what does God say? If you do this, you have chosen life. You will have your, li your, your, your life as a prize of war. But what happens if they stay in the city? They will die. By one means or another, whether by famine or by pestilence or by the sword. So God is setting before them the way of life and the way of death. Now imagine what it would be like to be in that city hearing this message. Imagine what it would take for you sitting in that city 
to actually go out the gates of Jerusalem and surrender to the Babylonians. There is zero concept of like, you know, just war theory and like proper treatment of captives and prisoners of war in the ancient world. No, no. You surrender to this enemy army, you are putting yourself at the disposal of a barbaric nation. So what would it take to go out? I mean, first off, you'd have to be willing to surrender the relative safety of those walls to the complete, you're, you're putting yourself completely at the mercy of this enemy army, who's probably pretty angry with you for the fact that you're holding yourself up in there and making them have to camp out for months, even years on end. You have to accept the idea that you've been taught by all the false prophets, and this is something we'll talk about in other weeks, but all the false prophets have been saying to them, peace, peace, everything's going to be fine. God's going to take care of you guys, and you guys, you don't have to worry. Jerusalem is invincible. You have to leave behind that false teaching, which is very seductive, especially when you're remembering back to Hezekiah's day, and you're like, hey, God did actually, at the last minute, cause a complete reversal and made those Assyrians go packing. You have to believe that God isn't going to do that this time, and you have to believe the prophet Jeremiah when he says, not this time. It's this time's going to be different. God is now fighting against his people. And then, this is kind of a, a little bit of more of a stretch, but it's part and parcel of this. You have to understand that what God was doing in that whole arrangement that had been going on for hundreds of years, the arrangement we call the Old Covenant, Israel, where you've got the Davidic king, you've got the temple, you've got the sacrifices, and and the wonderful arrangement there in the city of Jerusalem, you have to be willing to accept that that isn't forever. That God has something better in mind in the future. You have to actually have hope that even as this whole arrangement crumbles and God destroys Jerusalem, that he's still going to be faithful to his ancient words to Abraham and to David, and that he will actually do something new and better than what you have had to this point. Not an easy ask. And so, this is the paradox. The way of life only comes by accepting one's death. Only by basically giving up everything that you call life. The safety of the city, the, the, the whole like, arrangement that God had of the old covenant, um, even your personal well-being and safety. You have to be willing to give up that. And at that very moment, God says, the paradox is, you will have life. If you surrender yourself, you will have life. Well, much later in the book, we'll get there someday, um, we see Zedekiah at an even later stage than what is being pictured here at the very last days of the siege. And God's still saying the same message to him. Surrender and you'll have your life as a prize of war. You'll spare the life of your household. To the very end, Zedekiah refuses. The wall is breached. Zedekiah flees. He's captured. His children are put to death. It's a terrible end. He has chosen the way of death. When we come to the New Testament, we come to a book that, they come to a part of the Bible that is prepared for by this text. 
we come to a place where God is continuing to say the way of life is still by accepting death, by accepting judgment. And this is something that we should not be surprised by, right? Jesus himself said, have you not read all the prophets that Christ must suffer these things and enter his glory? In the Old Testament are tons of these, what we call types or shadows of ultimate spiritual realities, realities that become crystal clear in the time of Jesus. And what do we see with Jesus Christ? We see Jesus being born a human being, born under the law, it says. And he's born into the old creation. He's born into the creation where Adam was the head of the old creation. Adam sinned, therefore the entire old creation is under judgment. You will surely die, is what God says in Genesis 3. God sends his son into this old creation world. And he sends his son to be the redeemer of this world that is under a curse of death. It's just like with Jerusalem, 586 B.C., in our text, God is certainly going to come and judge the world. That is the curse that laid over Jerusalem in the narrow sense, and it lays over the entire old creation from the time of Genesis 3 onwards. And so, Jesus enters into a sin-cursed world that has the doom of judgment upon it. And what happens? He gets to the end of his life, and he has lived the perfect life. He has only done what deserves life and blessing and goodness. And yet he, because he is our redeemer and our substitute, he comes and he's faced with the same choice that the people of Judah were faced with in chapter 21. The way of life and the way of death. And the way of life for Jesus was to accept that he must surrender his life. And in his case, it did involve surrendering his life to soldiers. But it also involved surrendering his life to so much more. For our sin demanded retribution. It demanded not just physical death. It demanded the spiritual death of receiving the curse that our sin deserved. And it says that It was necessary in bringing many sons of glory that the author of our salvation would be perfected in sufferings. So Jesus, he surrenders himself, not just to mistreatment by the Roman soldiers. He surrenders himself to the wrath and to the curse of God. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember how he didn't want to do this. He says, Lord, if it be your will, let it pass. And yet when it became clear that the only way to life was through death. What did he do? He accepted that. He surrendered. He is the opposite of Zedekiah. And you know what? He did it willingly. He did it joyfully because of us. Jesus, in his death, the old creation has begun to pass away. The, the final judgment on the world, did you know that it's already begun? We talked about this in another sermon, Right? When did the end of the world begin? When Jesus died on the cross. When did the final judgment begin? When God the Father poured out the end times ultimate wrath of God on his son. And yet, paradoxically, the way of life led through death. By accepting death, by surrendering himself to death, what happened? God highly exalted him. And gave him the name which is above all names, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ 
is, Lord, cross before crown. It was true in the, in the days of Jeremiah. They had to accept the cross of exile before they could have the crown of God restoring them. So also in Jesus' day and, and for Jesus himself, he had to pass through the cross. Remember how you rebuked Peter? And he said, don't you realize that it's Satan who's speaking through you right now, Peter, saying, don't, you don't have to go to the cross. You can have the crown without the cross. It says, cross before crown. The Christ must suffer and then be crowned with glory. If we had meditated on Jeremiah 21, we would have known, yes, the way of life must lead through death. There must be judgment before there could be restoration. It was true for Judah. It was true for Jesus. And it's also true for us. And this is where the surrender to Babylon and to our chapter gives us a kind of hopeful new window. I love this. Is, this is one of the things I love about the Old Testament is it gives a, a kind of new way of looking at familiar realities. Like we all know that we need to trust in Jesus to be saved. Hopefully you understand that that's the way. But do you realize what's involved? Well, it's a lot like what was involved when Judah surrendered to Babylon. To surrender to Jesus involves just like with Judah, it involves a willingness. We have to be willing to accept that we deserve judgment. It has to be, we have to be willing to say, yes, God is judging, going to judge the world on the last day, and this world deserves it. In fact, I deserve it because of my sin. Because my sin deserves eternal wrath and condemnation from God. It's, it's the justice that God should pour out on a person like myself who ignores God for so much of my life and considers all these other things as so much more important than him. And so we say we know we individually deserve judgment. We also understand the entire old creation is going to pass. Yes, even on a glorious spring day like this, we say one day it's going to end. And so my life is not going to be found here. It's not going to be found in the things of this life, whatever those things are, whether it's actual stuff or money or the, the pleasures of this life or things like even good things like family or good work. We have to hold that with an open hand. We actually have to die to that. We have to say, that is not life. And we have to surrender and go outside the gates to the place of justice, we have to go to Jesus Christ and say, I deserved your cross. And we have to do that before the final judgment comes. There'll be lots of people on the last day who say, okay, I, I now see I really need to be saved. It'll be too late. It'll be just like when Zedekiah tried to flee the city when the walls were breached. Uh, no. Now is the day. Now is the time when we must acknowledge that all self-reliant attempts to find life and significance and wholeness in this life is vain. All those attempts are vain. And we need to surrender now, before the final judgment, go outside the gates to suffer with Jesus and to say, I deserve your cross. And we have to give up the old creation. And you know what's going to happen? Paradoxically, at the moment we give up the 
the demand to save ourselves, at the moment we give up clinging to the old creation, you know what's the amazing thing that's going to happen? As soon as you resign yourself to death, you find yourself alive with an entirely new life, a life of an entirely different order. What happened to all those Judeans who surrendered to Babylon way back when? Well, those Judeans went into exile to Babylon. They lived, and their children became the offspring who then eventually came back to the land and eventually became the recipients of God's restoring grace. In the same way, when we go outside to Jesus, out to the cross, and we say, I deserved this, paradoxically, we find ourselves heirs of everlasting life, joint heirs with Jesus. We who died with him now are alive with him. It's an amazing, amazing pattern of the scriptures. And so Paul can say, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. Think about this. No longer his own life, his old, old creation life that he has. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in his everlasting, unshakable, invincible life who lives in me. The way of life lies through death. And this doesn't just apply to getting saved in the first place. It's also the entire pattern of our entire Christian lives is the last point I want to make. If you really understand that the way of life leads through death and that you can't have genuine life unless you first surrender your life, then you've not just understood how to get saved, how to avoid the final judgment. You've also learned the very core of what it means to be a Christian. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this great quote, when Christ bids a man, he bids him come and die. And that, that sounds really grave, right? Like, okay, everybody, let's, uh, let's all become Christians and die. <laughs> well, if you get what he's saying here, you actually will want this. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's basically the same thing as Bonhoeffer saying. That's where he got it from Jesus. And then he says, think about this. This is what Jesus says. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And what happens? Who, whoever, think about this, whoever wishes to save his life, whoever wishes to have life, will lose it. You don't get heavenly glory unless you first embrace this valley of tears. What does this look like? Well, it looks like surrendering absolutely everything that you consider to be life in this world to the agenda of Jesus Christ. You, you leave up, you, you totally surrender your clutch on absolutely everything here. Everything now is subsumed under the agenda of Jesus Christ. You put everything in Jesus' hands and you don't look back. And so, you know, one, one way this can look is a person I knew, a talented, very personable young man, who gave up a full ride to Harvard's law school to pursue campus ministry. It was just what, I mean, there's nothing wrong with going to law school, but in this, his case, he felt God's call to pursue campus ministry. He needed to raise his own support. And what happened? The way of life led through death. He had to die to those dreams he had previously, but what happened? God made him the agent of the life of many people, including my own salvation. And this applies not just to like big decisions, like what am I, what am I, what's my life going to be about? Is it going to be dedicated to the glory of Jesus, or is it going to be dedicated to my, my improvement, my, my gain? 
Well, that applies not just to the big, like, what am I going to do with my life kind of questions. It also applies to everyday love. The way of life leads through death. So going and talking to somebody, even when you have friends, going and talking to somebody who's new, introducing yourself, listening to them, it's an offering of yourself and love. You're dying to what you would like to do because you know there's this other thing God's calling you to do, to show love. And so when you understand that the way of life leads through death, you embrace these things, not because you like dying, but because you trust that God will exalt all who truly trust in him on the last day. It requires faith. It requires you to trust him without yet seeing how he's going to bless you. And so I said before you today, the way of life and the way of death. The way of life, surrender yourself to Jesus to say, if I'm going to be saved, it's entirely by your grace, by your death on my behalf. And then the way of life, every day, dedicating your life to Jesus, surrendering your life to him. And then what will happen? God, the resurrected Jesus, he still speaks. He says to you, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you for this great pattern in scripture that the one who surrenders to death paradoxically finds himself on the path to life. We thank you for the profound picture you gave of it here in 586 BC, long ago, and in the days of the Babylonian siege. And we thank you so much that you continue, Lord, to give us that call today to go out, to surrender our lives to Jesus, to surrender our lives and to give our lives so that we might paradoxically find our lives in him and in him alone. Lord, if your promises aren't true, if the resurrection isn't true, then this is the most foolish decision we could possibly make. But because you are alive, we know it is not the path of folly, but the path that leads to life. So we pray, give us the grace to die that we might live. And we ask it through Jesus. Amen.